0: And welcome back for part two of our conversation with Graham Farmelow, author of The Strangest Man, the award-winning biography of the great theoretical physicist Paul Dirac. But first, I'm happy to let you know that we have fished out the 1963 Scientific American article by Paul Dirac and posted it on our website, where it'll be available free until July 24th, 2010. The article is called The Evolution of the Physicist's Picture of Nature and a shortened URL for it is bit.ly slash Dirac 1963. Now back to Graham Farmelo. We were talking about Dirac's conviction that formulations in physics had to be beautiful. I forget who said it, maybe you said it actually as the narrator, that um, letting the the beauty be your guide may only work if you're one of the few super geniuses Mm -hmm. of the field where you can appreciate the beauty. If you're even a slightly lesser light of a physicist, maybe you're not able to put that kind of beautiful thing together where beauty can be your guide. Yes. And then you really have to make sure that you're agreeing with experimental yeah. verification. That is, That is
1: right. That is right. I have to say one thing because, I w- uh, because although I admire Dirac as all theoretical physicists, I mean I'm a renegade theoretical physicist now, but all theoretical physicists really admire Dirac. But it has to be said that in his later career, though he did first-rate work until he was what sixty-one years old, wasn't revolutionary mm-hmm. like the work he was doing between twenty-five and th- and thirty-three, right? But he was doing really first-rate uh, at work. But the thing is that when he tried to use beauty as a, as his uh, as his lodestar, there are very uh, few examples. Right. Where that was successful. But can I give you one example, which which I think is absolutely extraordinary? And, and it is the only part of this book that I amended because I thought the example was so powerful. Um, Dirac, in one of his early visits to uh, to the Institute in Princeton, he was attempting to do something that strikes one. Well, most of us is being bizarre. He was tr- trying to come up with mathematics that might have a physical application. <laughs> Right. So he was really taking seriously this idea that mathematics should lead physics rather than experiment. Sounds far fetched, but he really believed that was the way forward. That that was a, the philosophy set out in his great 1931 paper, the one with the monopole and, and antimatter in it. So, I thought when I actually finished writing the book, right, that all of those projects were stillborn. Now, uh, let's cut right to two years ago, at uh, at. Key time at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where uh, one Maldesena, who who uh, mid 1990s produced uh, one of the greatest contributions in modern theoretical physics. Right, and what one did was to show a duality between string theory and quantum field theory, right? A way in which you uh, in which you could relate those those two two things. Right, and it was a one wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Right. Widely celebrated. Still still a a, a fecund field now. Right. Now, this was what one told me. A few months after he did that work, he found that the mathematics that he'd used to do that had been done by Dirac and it had been done in 1963 and 1936. Wow. Those were so Dirac was working on mathematics that had an application in the hands of Maldesena decades later and i simply had to put that in because i have I admit that i had been a little bit patronizing here i thought well all of this stuff none of it. it came to anything and there we are <laughs> You know? um so it, it you know he he was smarter than uh, that some people gave him credit for and, even smarter
0: and we uh it's going a little too far to say that he even anticipated string theory but in the 50s yeah he thought it might be yep. worthwhile to consider
1: the electron
0: as a string
1: that is absolutely correct uh, he uh w- w- just shortly after he nearly died actually uh he, he, he nearly died on a uh, on a uh, uh, on a sabbatical uh, he, said he went on that sabbatical because he was one of the physicists in the McCarthy era who was denied entry to the state so he went on a on a separate visit and then he came back after his his visa was uh, permitted and he st- he got into his mind that the re- the reason why quantum electrodynamics, that's a theory of photons and electrons, does, uh, doesn't does work, he was constantly unhappy with that theory, incidentally, because it was so ugly, it, 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 it offended his aestheticism, that he decided that instead of the electron being a point particle, that it would be productive to think about it as an extended particle, and he called that the string, right? So he was in on this idea of the extended representation of things like the electron. But you're absolutely right to say he the mathematics he was using there was not in any way uh, s- similar to the stuff that the string theorists now use. But he was already thinking about the possibility of an extended representation of what we now what we normally call fundamental particles.
0: And he was very impressed with Ed Witten's work in he was. early string theory.
1: Yes, he was. Uh, one of, uh, again, this is an example of where uh, I had underestimated him. I thought he was completely out of it. I mean, when I was a jobbing theoretician in the seventh uh, half my PhD, um, I, you know, I thought that uh, Dirac was, was sitting in his redoubt in Florida State University uh, and wasn't keeping up. But, in fact, very near the end of his life, he nominated Edward Witten, uh, a great, uh, great string theorist, uh, for an award. And he said that his work was absolutely mathematically beautiful. And Edward did meet him. He did meet him uh, at a meet, uh, in a retreat. I've actually got a photograph which Edward very kindly uh, lent me, and uh, Edward remembers that conversation. And what Dirac was saying right to him was, "Ignore quantum electrodynamics. Right, it is wrong." That was a theory that Dirac co-invented. Right, he thought it was such an ugly theory with these infinities which he abominated. Right, and he urged Witten and the other brilliant people of his generation to move on from that. And of course, the amazing thing is that as Dirac was lying. Dying in Tallahassee, that was that very time that that string revolution was happening, where Witten and others, Green and Schwartz in particular, were coming out with a theory that didn't have those offensive infinities in it. So you could argue, as I say at the end of the book, you could argue that Dirac's uh, you, uh, uh, obdurate, his uh, his uh, stubborn uh, resistance uh, to the, the modern quantum electrodynamics was validated by the fact that there was perhaps a, a, a theory without those infinities lying ahead.
0: There's a great uh, line by physicist Eugene Wigner, his brother-in-law. He says uh, fi- he was talking about Richard Feynman, yeah. and he said of Feynman, "Feynman is a second Dirac, only
1: this time human." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, Dirac's wife, Wigner's sister. I mean. Most people, I think, I think it's reasonable to say that most normal behavior, a, a man would introduce his spouse as, this is my wife. Dirac didn't. He would introduce Mansi uh, as, this is Wigner's sister.
0: You have a, a section, a very small scene in the book between hmm. Feynman and and Dirac. And uh, let's let's actually perform it. It's let's, very short. Let's do it. And uh, I'm, I'm American, so I'll be Feynman. Hmm. All right. They run into each other. Feynman says... I am Feynman.
1: I am Dirac.
0: It must have been wonderful to be the discoverer
1: of that equation. That was a long time ago. What are you working on? Maisons. Are you trying to discover an equation for them? It is very hard. One must try. <laughs> it really is Pinterest. <laughs> it is! <laughs> It's, it's, and Actually, that, that's Dirac in a talkative mood. <laughs> right, right. If if Feynman said to several of his friends that he – he certainly, uh, A, that, that Dirac was one of his heroes. He, he said that to many people and he regarded Dirac as a superior physicist. Again, something he said very often. Uh, uh, but he also said with some frustration he couldn't get anything out of Dirac. It was a great source of disappointment.
0: When one embarks on a biography, mm. one has to be prepared to spend – years with this person so what was it that motivated you to write this book and and gave you the courage to dive into the deep end of the dirac pool and and spend so much time there well the short answer is
1: foolishness um, because I mean, I'd never, never believed it would take that long. I mean, it took me six years to uh, research that book. Uh, but the, but, but a, a more perhaps more serious answer is that Dirac, uh, for me and for many, many other people who work who uh, have worked in theoretical physics, is uh, is seen as the first truly modern theoretical physicist, often called the theoretician's theoretician. He's English, of course. Uh, and in, uh, the only way in which I could compare myself to Dirac would be to say that he came from a, a, a modest home, and not—he uh, was the only one of the quantum physicists like that. Incidentally, no professors in the family, uh, from pretty ordinary upbringing. Uh, and I was just fascinated how these works of great beauty, and how the uh, and how his conception of physics emerged from this very humble beginning, and I. Uh, as I said, it was with some foolishness I took it on. I th- I thought if, uh, that it would that I would simply go through the uh, the you know the material uh, in the books. I, you know, to tell you it's true truth, Steve, it's, I look back now with considerable embarrassment. I didn't even know there was an archive. Now that it really is foolish. You really should not embark on a biography unless there's an archive, and I was. When I saw it, I realised this was a a treasure, a total treasure, because Dirac was a hoarder. He kept these letters. So when he and his wife fell out, or when he fell out with Cambridge University, or when he wrote to Heisman, he kept all these letters. So it it gave you a very, very strong sense of his personality. And then, thanks to the generosity of Dirac's children, in particular his his younger daughter... She gave me some letters that Dirac wrote, and these, I have to say, this was one of those goosebump moments that uh, that uh, that I'm betting I'll ever experience again. But uh, I went to visit Monica, and she gave me access to these letters that Dirac wrote—hundreds of them—when he was, in effect, falling in love with uh, the woman he eventually would marry. And instead of having this person who would uh, would could not string a sentence together, that consisted of more than one word, right? You have this tremendous outpouring of honesty about what it feels like to be someone who is regarded was uh, you know as a great a character but a very very odd character as someone that has such a terrible upbringing i mean lines like if you don 't understand what it 's like to come from a family like mine, you will never understand me i mean he really meant this, you know he really, really meant it. Uh, and, and and also the nonsense that physicists have believed for years that Dirac had no interests this is absurd if you uh, go and talk uh, you 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 read his letters, you talk to people who knew him well. Dirac had lots of interests he read tolstoy uh, he loved Beethoven, he listened to music uh, he, he loved to go to concerts he also his favorite character was Mickey Mouse. And he had this big thing for Cher. He loved Cher. He bought his own colour TV so that he could watch Cher. So this most austere of theoreticians in 1970 was sitting at the screen, looking at Cher doing, uh, strutting her stuff. Looking at Sting, looking at Elton John in his uh, rather in, – with in, in his sphinx-like concentration. I mean, that's what of, he was doing.
0: One of the great compliments he thought he was paying his daughter was to tell her that he thought she looked like yeah, Cher his, his, one his day. His granddaughter, actually. His but granddaughter, yes, that's absolutely
1: right. right. He was obsessed by Cher. <laughs> uh, and there's – I have to say Dirac was uh, – I'm not in any way accusing him of being unfaithful. As far as I know, he, he was very faithful to his wife. But he did love beautiful women. Um, um, uh, mary once told me that he hadn't spoken for days when he was in princeton and then he walked past a desk and said of a a lady he just passed she's a beauty the only words he spoke for several days do we have any evidence that Cher knew that dirac had a thing for well i sent her a copy of the book let's put it like that but she hasn't responded Uh. yet but i'm sure she will So
0: you've just begun a a sabbatical at at, uh, Institute for Advanced Studies?
1: Yes, I'm fortunate to be a visitor at the Institute for the Summer. What will you be doing there? I'm working uh, on my next book. Uh, and I'm afraid that's under wraps at the moment. Uh, but I'll come back and tell you about that another time. I hope it won't be six years, incidentally, Steve. I, <laughs> I can't stand the thought of that. But, uh, but no, I, and I'm still, I'm still talk, I'm still talking about Dirac. I mean, Dirac is, 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 if you like, was, was my grand projet. It's the thing that, uh, I really wanted to do. And I had such amazing, good fortune with the archive with his friends and family that was so helpful people really wanted you know to get under the help get under the skin of dirac and i wanted to honor that i gotta memory. tell you
0: it reads like a novel it like somewhat like a dickens novel because of the the horrible hmm. upbringing and and yet it's sort of an adventure story because he's gallivanting all over the world yeah and these other more familiar people, like Einstein, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, mm-hmm. Bohr, mm-hmm. uh, they—they're these supporting characters mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. And he's going to the Soviet Union to try to lobby on behalf of a friend who's sort of under
1: house arrest. And, oh, definitely. And he climbing. gave up his work then. That's a classic. much much worth saying this because we haven't we haven't uh, looked at this. But uh, he was absolutely at his peak, working at the do- office off next door to Einstein, and his uh, his best friend, Peter Kapitsa, the uh, Soviet physicist, was detained uh, be- uh, at Stalin's behest, and Dirac stopped everything. Right? He basically stopped working for months trying to get, with, with the help of Rutherford, right? Kapitza out of the Soviet Union. So this is, a, this is where he really did have empathy, you see. This is an example of that. When he felt there was an injustice like that, that he was absolutely on the case. And he did not, he really left, as they say, no stone unturned trying to get, uh, to get Kapitza released. He didn't do that, incidentally, but he only saw him later on in 1966 for a great homecoming, which I describe in the book. But you know, it's just an amazing thing. He, as you say, he throws down what he's doing. Yeah, he gave up months of his work and his and his personal life. Yeah, yeah, for that. yeah. yeah. Went, and it's the same thing, incidentally. His loyalty, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, he he had friends, or if you look at his friends, they were all over the spectrum during the Second World War. I mean, Kapitsa was working uh, with uh, in, 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 among Stalin's uh, scientists. Heisenberg, famously, was, uh, was, was stayed behind in Germany. Yes, we, I think most people accept wasn't a Nazi, but he was certainly working in support of the, uh, of of those German, German projects. Schrödinger, right, had a a strange uh, trajectory because, you know, he wrote this letter declaring his support for the Nazis apparently and then changing his mind. Dirac would hear nothing against any of them. And he was very close with Oppenheimer. He was. Oh, that was that was, uh, again, one of the uh, perhaps not loves of his life, but he had enormous affection for Robert uh, Oppenheimer. And when Dirac almost died, Oppenheimer made a, vi- a visit to see him in, in, in Canada. And I have to say that I, want, I see it's very important to stress this, but a lot of people say, why did Dirac end up in America? Right. And I have to say on that one that. Uh, Cambridge, in particular, but Britain as a whole, never really valued Dirac as perhaps as much as 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 they should have done. Um, I think they rated him as a brain. There's no question about that. But whereas uh, it would be sensible and courteous to offer him a position right after he retired, basically he was uh, he, he he was cast out after his uh, the Lucasian Chair ended, and then it was the it was American universities who were trying to get him there, and. Uh, one of the, one of the staff that, uh, got into Tallahassee, when other staff said, why do we want this old guy here? He said, this is like having Shakespeare in the English faculty. Right? right? That's a great line. And, and Dirac had a very happy retirement in Tallahassee. I have to say, he was made very welcome. And his wife, who hated Cambridge, she hated what she saw, the sexism of the place, the way it excluded her. And she was absolutely loved. The fact that she was – he and Dirac were embraced in that community. And incidentally, she took vengeance on this, right, because the Dirac archive, which is very well looked after in Tallahassee, she ripped that out of Cambridge. She was not going to let that stay. So there was a very, very strong loyalty to to their new friends and, and family in in Tallahassee. I should say that uh,
0: Graham farmalo is a wonderful person to follow on Twitter – your Twitter name is Graham Farmelo. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, G-R-A-H-A-M-F-A-R-M-E-L-O. And you'll get tweets about a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff, not just physics, culture, music. Uh, it, interestingly, you, you remind me, Dirac loved the movie 2001. Oh.
1: He sat in the theater and watched it over and over again. Absolutely. And he kept doing it, too. If he'd had a video player, I think he'd watch it all the time. <laughs> Seriously, he, he he saw it. He went back several times. And then his friends told me that whenever it came anywhere near Tallahassee, he would go and see it again. He absolutely loved it. But the,
0: And there was something about the way that Kubrick... Presented things visually that really appealed to him because of his own way of thinking visually. Well,
1: I I think – I mean, I was trying to – I mean, I love 2001 too. That's irrelevant, I suppose. But I was trying to work out why – what what the appeal was of this, and and it just occurred to me when I was reading about one of Kubrick's interviews about two thousand and one that he said he wanted to make a film where there was virtually no dialogue. I mean, there's not hardly a word spoken in that for half an hour or something. Well, like the computer has most of the lines. That's the best character in the movie, <laughs> you know. Uh, and you're, you're right, Dirac just loved. Again, it goes back to this visual sense that Dirac had, this sense of visual beauty. He was constantly referring to that you know and and that i i think that film speaks to us perhaps more effectively than any other movie about the the beauty the longing for the beauty of space which you could in certain moods say well you know if you're something say well, it's boring well it's nothingness but if you somehow it, it 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 brings you into yearning to know about it right and in a way dirac was yearning in the same way for inner space right in his in his work in quantum mechanics just to finish up, I'm going to ask you to uh, read a, a section of the book. The surplus of matter of antimatter at the beginning of the universe is still not understood, and thousands of physicists are working to understand it. Their main sources of experimental information are particle detectors where antimatter is produced by smashing ordinary particles into each other and then quickly separating off the antimatter before it's annihilated by matter. By comparing the decays of Particles with those of their antiparticles, experimenters hope to get to the bottom of the matter-antimatter imbalance. Every day, particle accelerators now generate about a hundred thousand billion positrons and five thousand billion antiprotons. A total of roughly a billionth of a gram. Although this quantity is only tiny, the ability to produce it at will demonstrates that Homo sapiens now, a million years after our species evolved, uses antimatter as a tool. Today, positrons are routinely generated in mass-produced equipment all over the world. Doctors use positron emission tomography (PET) to see inside their patients' brains and hearts, without the need for surgery. It's a simple technique. The patient is injected with a tiny amount of a special radioactive chemical that spontaneously emits positrons which interact with electrons in the tissue where the chemical settles. The photograph is a record of the radiation given off in the electron-positron annihilations. Within just a few decades, positrons changed in the eyes of scientists from appearing outlandish novelties to being just another type of subatomic quantum. The public has become more familiar with antimatter too from the fictional treatments of it in, for example, Star Trek and Dan Brown's Angels and Demons. But what is most remarkable about the story of antimatter is that human beings first understood and perceived it not through sight, smell, taste and touch, but through the purely theoretical reasoning inside Dirac's head.